Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our first It Matters Zoom session, Facebook Live event of 2022. My name is Stephen Traxel. I am the director of the Missions America Department for the Assemblies of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I know that uh, you have a lot of things going on tonight, but you're here with us today, and I pray you'll be blessed. I do want to say It Matters is a ministry of the Missions America Department with the under the direction and tutelage of my great friend, Brother Art Schnitzer. It Matters is uh, a ministry for the Missions America Department to help in your ministry. If you want to know church growth strategies, Bible studies, whatever you want to know about ministry, uh, reach out to Brother Art Schnitzer. He is the man, and he will help you uh, with that. That's what It Matters is all about. I am joined tonight by some, some great men. I'm very thankful that I can be part of this, this night tonight. Uh, two of the men joining me tonight are part of my, are my teammates on the Missions America Department. My good friend, Brother Art Schnitzer, he is our church growth director. Again, so if there's anything you need to know about church growth, please see uh, Brother Art and talk to him about what he can do. Maybe come to your church and talk to your church and excite you about teaching Bible studies and growing your church. And also Brother James Greer. Uh, he is a great guy. He makes us look good. He's the one that comes up with our logos. And uh, if you see our Facebook page, he's the one that manages that makes us look really good. And I appreciate both of them on here tonight. And I am in the middle. I look like I'm a disc jockey here from the 70s with my big headset here on, like I'm flying a plane. Uh, hopefully we're flying somewhere tonight. I know we will because we have one great man with us also, a brother J.H. Osborne. Um, before we put him on, I do want to say if you have not yet uh, liked or followed us on Facebook, please do so uh, because there's lots of great events that we have coming up uh, through Missions America and you're not going to want to miss it. We, we do have April 14th we have another It Matters Zoom session, and that's all about Bible Studies 101. So if you want to know how, how to teach a Bible study or how to get a Bible study started, come visit us there. But there's lots of things happening uh, through Missions America. You're going to want to join us, so please like and follow us on Facebook. This man needs no introduction. He is, uh, a, to me, a legend among us. He is a great mind, and I love hearing him preach and teach. And so when we're discussing uh, uh, about feeling called to ministry, I thought, man, Brother Osborne would be absolutely great. And we're just very thankful that he took the time out to be with us tonight. Brother Osborne, I'm so glad that you're here tonight and that you're willing to speak to us. And uh, we're going to turn it over to you. We got some time. And talk to us about the topic so you think you're called, all about being called into the ministry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute myself. I've already talked too much, and I'm going to turn it over to my, to my friend and someone I honor and, and, and respect very much, Brother J.H. Osborne. God bless you, Reverend. So glad to have you with us. My pleasure, Brother Traxel. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, folks, for joining in tonight. I know your time is valuable and, and uh, hope it will be um, beneficial to you. Uh, the Word of God is a precious thing. The Bible said, whatsoever things were written aforetime. Once everything was written in your Bible, not everything was written that happened before time, but whatever was written, the Bible said whatsoever things were written before time, were written for our learning. They weren't written to press flowers in from your mother's grave. They're not written to put, put pictures in or so you can remember dates or times. It was written for your learning. You're supposed to learn the Word of God. Whatsoever things are written before time were written for our learning. Then we threw patience and the comfort of the scriptures. Now, if you're going to read the Bible, you have to be patient with the Bible because it has some comfort in it. Whatsoever things written for time, written for our learning, we think patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. The Bible primarily 
is the book of hope. It has prophecy in it and poetry and it has history and got some songs in it and some good news, got some bad news in it, got some church order, got revelation, where revelation is an uncovering. It has some parables in it and some epistles in it. But all of that, you sum it all up, distill it all down to the very bottom of the funnel. God decided that this would be a book about hope. Now, if you're going to preach, maybe you feel called to preach. If you're going to preach your sermon, wherever you take your text from, Old Testament, New Testament, parables, Proverbs, where, wherever you're going to take the text from, it doesn't matter. Because everything written before time, and I'm guessing you're nobody here that was born before time. Therefore, everything was written, not, not everything was written that happened before time, before time. But whatever has been written before time was written and designed, and the intent was to give you hope. So if you're going to preach, you feel called to ministry, and you don't know where to start or what to do, just always remember this. When it's all been said and done, you have to offer hope. I don't care how bad it's been, how many dragons, how many two-headed monsters. I don't care how many bad kings, good kings, old kings, young kings. It doesn't matter where you start. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, wherever you want to go. Just so you end up with hope. That's, That's the reason it was put in the Bible. Not everything was put in the Bible. But what he chose to put in the word of God was to give people hope. So I don't care how bad the situation is where you want to start your text from. doesn't matter how ugly it may be or how horrendous it may be. You have to be patient and keep reading, keep going through until you get to hope. Because that's why it was put in the book, was to give every man hope. Because hopelessness leads to, leads to disillusionment, and it leads to depression. It actually leads to suicide. Mm. So our world and your world needs hope. But don't leave people strung out over some captivity or some bondage or some lion's den or before some giant. Always, always do the reason the book was written aforetime was to give men hope. Hmm. So if you can remember that, jot that down someplace. That's good. We are. In the Oxford Unbridge Dictionary, there are 520,000 words. There are only 26 letters in the alphabet. We were talking about that, but... Uh, but the tracks recording in progress. Okay, I'm not sure what's going on there. We we just started. We we got recording going on. You're you're good, brother Osborne. All right, 26 letters in the alphabet, and no one will ever need another letter. There are 783,137 words in the King James Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and Acts 2:37. I'm sure you've read it a hundred times. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter, to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Now, this what shall we do is a four-word question. Mm. Just four words to right. sum up what shall we do. It was a long, drawn-out, conditional thing, you know, get into some lament or some hardship. It was just four-word question. Then Peter preached to answer that four-word question. Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So Peter gave the instructions and the process to save you from your sins. It is precise. It is brief. What if I told you? This is just one sentence. He answered a four-word question 
with one sentence. If I told you to answer that four-word question, I'll be off the cuff, just off of the show, ask you that question, and you have to write a one-sentence statement that will save every man, woman, and child on the first face of the earth, of every denomination, of every culture, of every social standing, every color, every country, no matter where they were, that forward question, you would answer with that one sentence, and you just, and he didn't have to go home and study, he didn't have to Google it, he didn't have to get on, obviously on the internet, he didn't have to call anybody, he didn't have to have a meeting, he just spit it out, right out of his lips. And he used 29 words, and it takes 12 seconds to say the 29 words. Really? So he answered a four-word question. That is a mammoth undertaking of a question. What yeah. shall we do? And he answered it with 29 words. One sentence that will save every man, woman, and child that will live from now on on planet Earth. Mm. They need that 29 words that will save them from their sins. Mm. This is not a complicated thing. This is not something that, that, that needs a lot of words. Then you might ask them, why do we preach so long? Why don't we just, people ask four words, let's give them 29, let's give them one sentence. Well, Peter wasn't finished yet, but he gave the instructions and the process to save you from your sins. It was brief, but it was universal to the salvation of every man. He just picked out, out of the, out of the you know 520,000 words that there are, he said, I'll take these 29 right here. And I'll answer that four-word question that will save their souls. If they'll obey this, it will save every man, woman, and child. And so uh, you might ask yourself, why do people preach so long? You know, well, it, it, he wasn't finished yet. Then he says, and with many other words, did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And he said the word, the word save here, it's not like saving your soul. The word here is to save, is to protect or preserve. Or to deliver. If you want to protect yourself, it took a lot more words to save you from your generation than it did to save you from your sins. Mm. I'm not talking about the cost. I'm just talking about the words, mm. 29 mm. words to save you from your sins if you'll obey them. But it takes many other words to save you from your generation. Because mm. he talked about his generation being a wicked and perverse generation. He called it an untoward generation, actually. They, they are they are in a decent generation. They are an undisciplined generation. They are a, a disobedient generation. They're, 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 they're all that goes into perversity and, and crooked generation. They're lawless, immodest, unruly. They're a wild generation. So saving you from your sins, if you will obey 29 words, they will save you from your sins. But it'll take more words than that to save you from the generation that you live in. That's why you need to have a vocabulary of words. Yeah. You need to be able to speak fluently and be able to know what you're talking about. Right. Because after you've given the 29 words to a four-word question, it'll take many, many other words to save you from your generation. Save you from sins. Is actually a matter of a moment. You can come to the altar and repent. You can get water baptized in Jesus. It'll take you more time to get dressed 
then we ought to go down the water and be baptized in Jesus' name. God will fill you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and you will speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives you utterance. But it's not a time-consuming thing. It's really a matter of moments to get all of that done. Now, the cost was tremendous. I'm not discounting the cost. I'm just saying the obedience to those 29 words will save you because of what Jesus paid the price for you. Mm-hmm. Not discounting the price at all, just the time that it takes to be obedient to that. But when it comes to saving you from your generation, mm-hmm. many other words will it take. You, 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 it'll be a process of preaching, of, 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 of teaching, Bible studies, you know, prayer meetings, admonishments, exhortation, self-discipline, way more than 29 words. That's why you need to be in Bible study. You need to be in church every time the doors are open. It's good. If you're, if, if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to change rooms. Yeah. You need to hang around some folks that at least know more than you know. Yeah. So you can learn. You can be educated. You gain words. You know, you, you, need, you hear that sometimes they interview these basketball stars and football stars and what have you. They put a microphone in front of them. They got about 12 words, you know. They start saying, know what I mean? Know what I mean? No, we don't know what you mean. You only use 12 words, you know. And uh, they're actually ignorant when it comes to speaking or being able to express themselves. That's why you need to learn words. They will be the tools by which you will preach, not just the 29 words to the four-word question. They will be the one that you can save people from their generation. Then, Because people get the Holy Ghost, you never see them again. Like the Holy Ghost was your ticket to heaven. That's all you need to know. No, you have a generation out there that's against you. It's hazardous. It's a, it, 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 it flies in the face of everything that you believe to be true. It's a hostile environment. That's why we need preachers and we need teachers. We need people that know how and can use words that explain and cause them to comprehend how they can be saved from their own generation. Thank you for joining us today. You know, primarily there are at least a couple of aspects to ministry. There is, you know, teaching, and uh, that's designed to touch you intellectually. Uh, It's by design to be mental. It's a mental exercise. It it challenges your ability to learn, to think, and to reason. We're not a generation of thinkers, by and large, but you have to be able to think and to be reasonable. You know, if you will be reasonable with God, come let us reason together. He says, it's not come let us be radical. That doesn't come jump off the cliff. Not come out, let's get out on a limb and then saw it off. He said, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. Just be reasonable about this. Mm-hmm. Heaven's going to be great. Hell's going to be horrible. You don't want to go there. Be That's reasonable. Right. That's right. Be reasonable. You know, uh, this teaching is to the impartation of knowledge. Now, preaching is altogether different. Touching, it, it teaches and it touches and agitates you emotionally. Preaching excites your feelings. You know, it can bring excitement. It can bring joy. It can bring sorrow. It can bring fear. You know, it's preaching. And it's designed. Preaching is designed to move you, to disturb you from where you are, to get you to move from where you are to where you need to be. You know, but but seldom do you hear a, a young man declare his intentions to be a teacher. Usually his focus is to be a preacher because it seems that's where the excitement is. You know, you're, you're going to ask for a decision based upon people's feelings. When you teach, 
generally speaking, I would say, you don't ask for any kind of decision to be made when you teach. It's hard to measure whether you did good or didn't do good. Maybe with the amens you've gotten, the glory hallelujahs or the tears you managed to generate by teaching people and making them feel bad or what have you. But teaching really is intellectual. It, it, it's, it's mental. Now, now, preaching is emotional. You're trying to get yeah. people to make an emotional decision. Move, disturb you. It's what seldom do here, especially young men or young ladies, declare their intentions to be a teacher. Usually they want to be a preacher because that's exciting. You know, teaching is not necessarily exciting. You know, there's an old saying that nobody's taught till somebody's learned. And uh, so you got to keep teaching the same thing, being repetitive over and over again, which is not pleasant to you. You know, you're going to ask for a decision in preaching based on people's feelings, you know. But you can measure preaching by looking at the altar or the baptismal tank or the Holy Ghost infilling. Kind of a measure of your ministry, even though it's God that does it, but it right. gives you some sense of well-being. Teaching, generally, you don't ask for a decision based on what you taught. It's mental. It's intellectual. It takes some time to manifest whether you have learned what you have been taught. Can you reason? Can you think? Are you a thinker? Because the Bible talks about people who are ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. They never learned anything from what they had been taught, ever learning. No retention, no capacity to think or to be reasonable about what they have heard. So teaching and preaching are altogether different in that one is preaching is emotional and teaching is intellectual. Mm. There was a man of the Pharisees in John 3, 1 and 2 named Nicodemus, a root of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God. For man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. We know, that's the Pharisees and the Jews know, thou art a teacher come from God. He's trying to touch us intellectually. Touch us. That's what teachers want to do. They want to touch you intellectually. That's why the revelation, they said, you, you, you allowed Jezebel to teach. She wants to teach you intellect. She wants to touch your mind, touch your intellect. That's what teaching does. It touches you intellectually, you know. It imparts knowledge and education and learning. It's development, develops future leaders. The impartation of knowledge is, is used in lectures and instructions and study and sermons and speeches and lessons and explanations and examples and books. You got to listen. You got to study so that you can remember what you have been taught. But not only do you have to remember what you've been taught, it's very important. This point is very important. But continue thou in the thing, Paul wrote to Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Right. It's not only just learning. You got to, where did you learn that at? Who right. taught you that? Where did you hear that at? If a mm -hmm. child comes in to his parents and rips off a word, the first thing they want to know is, where did you hear that? That's right. Where did you get that? And they'll say, nowhere. They're lying now. They put off cussing the lion. Mm. <laughs> we are not inventions of words. That's right. We hear it somewhere. We just repeat it, what we have already heard. Mm. But you have to be very, very careful. Knowing of whom thou hast learned them. You need to learn, but you need to be careful where you learn that. For no man can do these miracles except thou doest, except God be with thee. So there's a colon in between thou art teaching come from God. And Jesus moves from teaching to doing. You know, there comes a time in your life, and you'll experience this if you're going to, if you survive ministry. You can have preaching 
you can have teaching. But then there's another aspect of ministry that not, not everyone knows about or thinks about at least. I call it clinical. It's the time, we'll use the term medical school. It, it, it's devoted to, 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 to diagnosis and, and uh, the care of outpatients. The student is out of class now. He's out of the classroom. He's taken to the bedside of a patient. And, and it's testing time. God will not leave the student in the classroom, but will eventually move that student to the clinic to see how well he has learned what you've been taught in the classroom. Now, in the classroom, nobody dies. In the classroom, nobody takes the wrong medicine. It's all kind of theory and ideas. It's studying. It's intellectual. But when you come out to the clinic, it's no longer just intellectual. Now you have to put it into practice. And that's where the trouble begins, trying to practice what you have said you have learned. Because, see, the Bible's easier to preach than it is to live. That's true. You can preach it hard. You can preach faith hard. You know, preach all the scriptures on faith. There's a bunch of them. By faith they did this. By faith they did that. By faith they passed through this. And, and on and on and on about faith. But when it comes to the clinical side of it, we find out if this is just something easy to preach or do you have the capacity to actually live by faith? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no way. You preach that to your brains fall out. But let's see how well you do when you have to march through the valley of the shadow of death. Because that's where the clinical side comes in. It's not just classroom. It's not just teaching. It's not just reading. It's not just preaching. It's clinical. Now you are the one passing through that. Let's see how well you do in the lion's den. Let's see how well you do when you have to have faith in God. You know, because it's easy to preach. And believing God, doing good to those that abuse you, treating your treating people that are bad to you, treating them good. And we'll see whether you can clinically do that or whether that's just something you preach or something you teach. You know, I went to school. Uh, in high school, it was different than it is now, really. Uh, I, we were, uh, I studied electricity, and I got a diploma in electricity and in electronics. And then I went to Purdue University to study industrial electronics. When I was in high school, we had, we had time that was classroom. We sat in classrooms. We looked at schematics and drawings. We studied the theory of electricity. There were a lot of formulas and codes, insignias, things that we had to read about voltage and amps and resistance, all that kind of stuff. But then we got out of the classroom. And we came into the clinical side where you have to do some of that, even in high school. In fact, they would line us up. All of our students had to line up every day for the electricity class or electronics. We had to line up. He would take to a, to a, a, a place where you could plug in um, your electricity app. And he would plug in, take one, whatever the number was on that, on that board there. And uh, he would plug one big wire cable into that number. Then they plug the element into a voltage, 120 volts. And you have to come by, put your middle finger on one terminal, take your other finger and put on the other terminal and take 120 volts every day of class to shock you, to make it make you feel like what it's going to be. If you don't get this right, you're going to get a jolt. You're going to get knocked on your back if it's not right. Or if you plug into 120 volts and you're supposed to plug into 12 volts, you know, what you're going to do is burn some equipment up. So this is clinical, but you can't stay in the classroom all your life. 
eventually you have to come out and see if you can practice what you have been taught in that classroom. You know, and so, you know, nobody gets shocked in the classroom. You just get a bad grade. You know, if you mess up, you don't get the schematic right, you don't get the drawing right, you just get a poor grade. But when you become clinic, now then you have to come and actually practice that and do what you've been taught. This is not about getting a bad grade. This is about burning up a, some wiring or, or, or burning yourself up or hurting yourself somehow, getting yourself in trouble. And so it's the clinical side of it is always hard for people. You know, now, now here I am, things don't go right in your life and things are upside down. Your wife is sick, the biopsy's out. That's just clinical. It's a clinical side of the Bible where God's going to take you to find out if you have learned what you've said you've been preaching. Is it just preaching that? Is it just telling that? Or have you learned from that? Do you understand now I have to live? Because the Bible's not just about preaching. It's about living. You have to learn to live the Word of God. And the only way that can happen is, is in the clinic. You have to get out of just the teaching mode. You have to face a patient and know that you have to diagnose and you have to write some kind of prescription that will help that. Now, if you're wrong, it's not just a bad grade. You're going to hurt somebody. You're going to cripple somebody. Somebody may die for your bad judgments because you failed to learn what you should have learned in the classroom and now you have faltered and failed in the clinical side of it. And most people that do get this disillusioned with God are in the clinic. They cannot deal with what they're going through. They're having problems. They're having circumstances. They have troubles, you know. I mean, one of your kids goes haywire, you know. It's easy to preach the prodigal son. It, you know, it's, 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 it's been probably as much as any single sermon out of the Bible that's ever been preached. It's a good preach about hope, too, about coming home. But it's not as easy to live. You get, it's just not as easy to live when your kids go, hey, why run off from home or, or get involved in something? You know, it's just, it's just hard to live it much more difficult than it is to preach it. Well, just have faith in God. They're going to come home. Everybody tells you that. They're going to come home. They're going to come home. But living until they come home, that is where the clinical side of it is that you really believe what God said he would do and what he's going to do. Let me just give you this little example of the clinical side. It's very, I think, very appropriate. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. This is John 8, verse 1, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So he had been at the temple. He had been teaching all day. Then when evening came, he left. And seldom did anybody invite Jesus home with them. Did you ever notice that? Seldom did anybody ever invite Jesus home. And you think, I would, I would have invited Jesus home. If he had got tired, I'd say, Jesus, come home with me. Welcome in my house. But I don't know. I don't know because Zacchaeus, he went home with Zacchaeus, and he ended up living half of everything he owned. You see, God knows what's in your tongue before you say it. He knows what's on your mind before you speak it. He knows what's in your heart before you expose it. So you can't stand much of that. Having somebody in your house that knows everything there is about you before it even happens, knows everything you've ever done, every word you ever spoke, never time your heart ever beat. It's pretty, pretty hard stuff to have in your house with you. And so he didn't get invited home very much. So he stayed in the Mount of Olives. Then early in the morning, he came again to the temple. He's back again. And all the people came unto him and he sat down and he taught them. Jesus knew the importance of teaching. You have to be taught. You have to be able to reason. You have to be able to think. You have to have, he's trying to teach you how to deal with life in the classroom. They say unto him, 
and, and, and the scribes and the Pharisees brought it to him, a woman taken in adultery, and they had her set in the midst. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Your teacher, tell us what the law says. So Jesus had taught the day before and returned from the Mount of Olives the next morning, and, and he recrossed the Kidman Valley, entered the temple as on the first day, and waited until the worshipers came in, when a sufficient number had gathered. Jesus took a seat, you know, against the wall, turned, turned the temple into a schoolroom, and began to teach. And it wasn't very long until his, until his teaching, during his teaching, a band of scribes and Pharisees adorned with their badges of, of sanctity, you know, with one in their midst who had been guilty of a flagrant sin. They made their way through the crowd, placed their trembling prisoner before him, and declared they had come there early for his opinion. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were very versed in the, very versed in the law, so they were not there to be taught. They were not in Jesus' classroom. They hadn't been there the day before. They were only there today. They came in after they, kind of like people that come in late to church, you know, they don't come in when it starts. They want to kind of get some of that over with, so maybe just come for the preaching or come early or leave late. Come, you know, come like you are and then leave like you came. That's generally the situation. So these guys came in, you know, and, and they, get, they weren't there to be taught because they knew the first five books of the Bible. They knew the scriptures. You know, they were scribes and Pharisees, very well versed in the law. So they were not there to be taught in the classroom. No trial was necessary for this woman. There were no mitigating circumstances. There was no excuse of defense to be made. You know, she had been taken, that she had been captured and seized and caught in the very act of adultery. It was an intolerable act of adultery that she was caught in. There was no need for judgment, even concerning the act. There was nothing, nobody needed to exercise any kind of judgment. These men had simply come for sentencing. They were interested in Jesus' interpretation of justice. How did he understand the law concerning adultery and its punishment? They had declared, and Moses and the law commands us, that such should be stoned. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6 and 7, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first upon him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hands of the people. So shalt thou put evil away from among you. So the witnesses actually became the executioners. Stoning was a slow, agonizing death outside the city. After they had stoned a person, they made a heap of those stones and raised up a memorial to the person and to the sin they had committed. I'm reasonably sure. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but I'm reasonably sure. But this woman's well aware of the consequences of her sin. She's a Hebrew, so I, I'm sure she'd been taught from a little girl. Stay away from this. Don't do this. You know, what could have motivated her to take such a risk, knowing the penalty and the price for it? You know, I can make all kinds of excuses. You know, perhaps she was just lonely and got caught up in a moment. Maybe she's a victim of false promises, caught up in a flattery of some loose living man. You know, I don't know the circumstances that led to the sin. But I do know the rationale that are used by the Hebrews, and that was my only hope is I don't get caught. I don't want to get caught. Because the weak link in the law was that you had to be caught in the sin. There was no such thing as circumstantial evidence. Circumstances couldn't 
could bring judgment upon you. Like somebody would say, well, you were seen coming out of the house or you were seen in the area or, you know, you had all the motive and, and opportunity for that, you know, time frames. Where were you at a certain time or certain date, you know, windows of opportunity and maybe you get secondhand information. Well, so-and-so saw this and somebody else saw that and somebody else saw the other, you know, and all that secondhand information carried no weight. The law only recognized eyewitnesses and then it demanded two of them. So then, if I don't get caught, everything will be okay. If nobody sees me when I do it, then the weakness of the law was, since you didn't get caught, there was no price or penalty to pay. I will escape the embarrassment, the open condemnation. You know, I can walk around my head held high with no stone memorials to my legacy, you know. If I just don't get caught, I can go on with my life. I can, I can, I can hold my head up, you know. I, I, can, I can be pure and be innocent, and no one will ever know. But her worst nightmare came true. She was caught and taken, captured, and seized without any hope. There was no mercy. There was no compassion, no escape. She's been caught. And she had two witnesses, and they were Pharisee and scribe. So they're credible witnesses. You know, sometimes you see them on television, you know, in their jail clothes and shackles and handcuffs and armed guards leading the way. They try to cover their faces with a, some kind of a piece of paper, some judgment that was against them. And, you know, it's just the shame and the, and the thought of being caught, caught and sent to prison. You know, caught and sent to death row, caught in your transgressions. It seals your doom, you know. They continued to question Jesus. She was caught in the act, so what shall we do? This was no classroom for teaching or instruction. You know, this was a clinic where the patient is present. She's now before you. This is not this this was not a classroom teaching. This was clinical now, because the patient is there. We want you to diagnose. We want you to write some sort of prescription for her. So when they continued asking Jesus, it looked like he wasn't going to answer. They continued asking him. He lifted up his head, lifted up his head, and said to them, "He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her." Now, all you scribes and Pharisees, who are to be your executioner, should examine yourselves. And conclude this, have you ever broken the laws of God? Have you ever failed to do what you knew to do? Have you ever missed the mark of God's intention in your life? Do you have any transgressions on your life account? Have you ever been guilty even of her sin? And Jesus paused for a moment for their inventory. He stooped down and began to write on the ground. Now people preach what he wrote on the ground. Where is the man? Or, or, you know, Jesus was just killing time. He has, he has a ticket spanker, you know, and he might have wrote tic-tac-toe. I don't know why he wrote on the ground. He just scratched it Because he's given them time to inventory their own lives and find out if they were sinless. And again, he stood down, stooped down, and wrote on the ground. See, this is clinical. This is not, this is not theoretical. This is not, this is not formulas. This is not studying the law. This is now making application. 
This is now understanding the intent and the design of the law. And again, he stooped down and wrote the ground. And they which had heard it began being convicted in their own conscience. We found out that there were more than just two witnesses there. There may not have been anybody there to actually watch them, but they did have a conscience that was smiting them, for they knew what they had done. And they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest. It was, it was, it was the, the oldest one that went out first, because he had much more inventory to do, looking back over his life and what he had done. That was counted as sin. And was he prepared to be the executioner of one who had sinned? Simply because he saw it and no one had saw his sin. He had more years. He had been taught more and he had fewer excuses. He had more years of sin and transgressions. The youngest, he had fewer years, but as a youth, he realized he had sowed some wild when seeds in his life, you know, he had made foolish decisions and errors and, and bad judgment. So when the spotlight was turned on themselves, they knew they were not qualified to be the executioners. The only difference between these religious men and the woman was the fact they had never been caught. There were no witnesses. Therefore, there were no executioners. That was the weakness of the law. That if there were no weaknesses, witnesses, then you could have never been caught. Therefore, you escaped any punishment for your sin. And Jesus lifted up himself and saw none but the woman. He said unto her, Woman, where are those that accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. David wrote, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Here's the deal. Instead of sin bringing the last day of your life, if you will get caught and let your conscience speak to you so that you're caught, and you will bring it to Jesus, he will forgive you. And the last day of your life becomes the first day of a new life. That's the clinic, not just the teaching. Caught and brought to Jesus, changed that woman's life. The Pharisee and the scribe had never been caught. Therefore, they never brought their sin to Jesus for forgiveness. She was caught to be set free. You need to preach this, that when you sin, you bring it to Jesus. Be caught by your own conscience. Sometimes nobody sees you do it. If it's completely oblivious to human eye, then your conscience knows. Then when your conscience smites you, you bring it to Jesus, and he can set you free. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, him, there was a ram you know, caught in a thicket by his horns. He'd gone up to sacrifice his son, Isaac, to God. That's what God had told him to do. He's drawn back the knife, ready to plunge it into his son, Isaac. And the Lord said, stop, hold back your hand. For now I know that thou fearest me, 
Now I know that you respect me. I know you love your son, but I can see now you love me more than you love your son. And the Bible said a ram was caught in a thicket by his horn. Now, my question is, I question, what is a ram doing in a thicket? You know, rams are sure-footed. They're, they're, they can scale a mountain. They, they live up in the cliffs and up in the tops and the realms of, of, of high places. What is a ram doing in the thicket? very word ram means powerful and strong and, and his horns are his strength and his glory and his defense they're his power his horns are symbolic of all the power of a, of a ram what's he doing in a thicket what's he doing in thick stuff how could you get caught by your horns you mean you're strong, strong enough to break some weeds and some stuff off your horns what's a ram doing in a thicket unless he went there on purpose for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, as you well know, was the ram caught in a thicket, in a thicket of sin, that Isaac might be set free. It's always the case. Caught, brought to Jesus, and set free. That's the principle. That's the clinical side of the word that's taught in the classroom. You know, when you get in the clinic, you get in the place where you're now having to live some of the stuff that you've preached and talked about and explained to other people, you know. And you use a lot of words to, to try to convince people that's what they need to do. It, 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 I, I don't think there's any escape from that, you know, that, that you have certain things that we go through in our lives. You know, the Apostle Paul was such a great preacher, but you have to look at what he went through to achieve that. What did he go through? I know what it is to be shipwrecked. I know what it is to be perils of the sea. I know what it is to be perils of my own countrymen. I know what it is to be, I know what it is to be stoned and left for dead. I know what it is to be beaten with a whip. I know what it is to be in storms that like they would ever be over with. I know what it's like to be cast on an island. I know all, I know what it is to be in, in prison. He said, I know all these things. And having known those things, when he preached, he didn't preach out of theory. He preached out of the clinical side of his life, what he had gone through, what he had endured in his life. So his words had weight. They were not just suggestions from the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is powerful. Don't misunderstand me. It is powerful. But when you add the clinical side to the Word of God, you have actually been through that. You have been there. You have tasted of that. You have felt that. You have, you have, you have experienced that, not just in the classroom of teaching, but you have said, so now and then the Lord's going to take you somewhere you probably didn't really want to go just to find out if you've learned can you reason this out are you can you think have you taught have you are you ever learning and maybe never coming to the knowledge of the truth to understand that jesus christ if you can if you transgress see this this is hope this is hope out of a thicket this is hope out of two witnesses that saw what was wrong this is hope that's why it was written. That's why God put that in the Bible. Because all things were written for your learning. That with you patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. When, you, when God finds out that you love him more than you love anything that's precious in your life. You, he said, now I know that thou fearest me. That is fear means respect and honor. Now that you glory me, stay your hand. I was not, I was, I was going to see how much you loved me. 
but giving this little clinical side. Because I mean, you can go through all you want to go through, you know, preaching and teaching and 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 and, and going through all the antics and and all that you can do to try to present the word of God to people. But then the Lord won't leave you in the in the classroom. There's a clinical side to this where you have to meet the patient and you have to diagnose and find out if you've learned your lessons well and you can think and you can reason it out. And that's the struggle sometimes that we have as preachers. It's not preaching. Preachers are dying to dust. They're everywhere. You know, when the clinic comes to find out if you can do this, if you can live this. You know, when Elijah, Elijah was not a good, uh, he was not really a good mentor. You know, he really wasn't. He, he was just, he was a loner. It's always by himself, you know. When he prayed, let God kill me, you know. He didn't care about the future. He didn't care if anybody picked up the mantle. He wasn't worried about what's Naaman going to do, you know, what's what's the woman who's coming to take her sons all. What did he care about any of that? He just, you know, I'm depressed, you know, because he was a loner. So when the Lord sent him by Elijah, he threw his mantle on him and just kept on walking. Unbelievable. Just kept on walking. The Bible said Elijah ran after him. You know, where are you going? You know, he just threw his mantle and took off. He didn't say, I'd give him a Bible lesson or encourage him or put his arms around him and, you know, did anything. He just kept on walking, I guess. And Elijah went after him and said, let me go kiss my mom and dad goodbye. You know, and he said, what's that to me? I don't care what you do. You know, after plow with them oxen, go kiss your oxen goodbye. It don't make a difference to me what you do. I'm not concerned about that. So he went in and he kissed his mom and dad goodbye. I don't know if he knew it or not. But as far as the Bible concerned, he would never see him again. It was a kiss goodbye. It was a clinic. And he went in and kissed his mom and his dad goodbye. You know, when you kiss your dad goodbye, you're kissing your bloodline goodbye. When you kiss your mother goodbye, you're kissing your flesh goodbye. She gave you your flesh. So when you kiss your mom and dad goodbye, you're actually kissing your flesh and blood goodbye. And if you're going to ever do anything for God, you must kiss your flesh and blood goodbye. And flesh and blood can't inherit this. This is a spiritual battle, a spiritual fight you're going to be on. So you have to kiss your flesh and blood goodbye before you even begin. Then he went outside. He had 12 yoke of ox. He was plowing with one yoke of them. So he slew the ox and sacrificed them unto God. For they was his earthly inheritance. He would someday own all the ground that it would take for 12 yoke of oxen to plow. He would someday own all the oxen and all the equipment. But he burned equipment up and offered the oxen in sacrifice. So it will cost you your worldly inheritance. Maybe if you pursued some other vocation, you may could have made more money, been more popular, done more things, had a better home, drive a nicer car. Maybe you could have. In order to minister to the souls of lost men, you need to kiss your flesh and blood goodbye. And you have to give up your worldly inheritance. It doesn't mean you never have work, never have a job. I'm just saying the world's not going to give you anything. It'll be an asset to you in wearing the mantle of a prophet. It's not an asset to you. It'll be a liability to you. And so you give that up to come and follow and one day 
wear the mantle of a great man. It's very costly. You know, this thing about preaching is very costly. And a giant arm is laid down across it to say, you know, don't take this serious. You know, don't, this is not one vocation among many. You know, say, well, I don't want to be an electrician, but I want to be a plumber, but I want to be a basket weaver, uh, or a horseshoer. I don't know what I want to be. No, I think I'll be a preacher. Yeah, you know, just one among many. You know, this is a calling. That's nothing to do with you choosing one among many. This is one among none that God must call you. Nobody can call you into that. God has to call. He ordained 12, but he never ordained those 12 to pick the replacements because God calls men into the ministry. And when he does, there are some struggles, some hardships, because God will find out in the clinic whether you've learned that puts you in the classroom for a long time, the things you have to learn. And some of the learning is difficult. Even Peter says some of the things that Paul say are hard to be understood. You know, we don't always comprehend everything that God's doing. I don't have breakfast with him every morning. I wish I did. I wish I wish he wore a watch so he'd know what time it is, and, and at least by a calendar so you know what day of the week it is. We have struggles and hardships in minds, and God has a mind of his own. He doesn't, he, he, he counsels with his own self. What will I do? What will I do? He doesn't counsel with anybody else. Then ask you your feelings or your thoughts about it. Then ask you if you'd like to do this. He just said, come on, we're going to the other side. He just takes you, you know. He takes you through storms, takes you through struggles and hardships and all the things that wound you. And there will be some scars in your life when, because of what you have to go through to be this kind of preacher. If you, if you know this, it will be a help to you that, that ministry, by and large, is a very unthankful vocation. Not a lot of folks will thank you for it. I mean, if you're going to be a teacher in Sunday school class, you can teach for years and never have a parent come to you and say thank you. I mean, you can take cotton balls and put glue on them and make sheep out of them. You can cut out nativity scenes, stay up late, get to church early of all the craft that you put together and never have a parent, parent say thank you. I'm not saying you'll never have one. I'm just saying you can't count on that because by and large, it's an unthankful job. It's just unthankful. Now, here's the way you do it. If you enjoy the doing of it, then it will always be worth it. If you enjoy the doing of it, you have to enjoy doing it because there's not much left to compensate for what you do. So enjoy what you're doing. Take it in stride. If no one ever mentions it, God's watching and one day, he'll be rewarding you for it. But by and large, serving in the kingdom of God is a thankless job. You won't get a lot of names. You won't get a lot of awards. Your name may not be over the overhead, you know, telling everybody what you did today and how you how you cut out a manger scene or sheep or or what have you. You made the ark of it. You made the ark and put animals in it and work night and day, spent your own money for it. And, Nobody act like they even appreciate it. But if you got your pleasure from the doing of it, then it will always be worth it in your life. But you have to enjoy doing it. I think if you read the Bible and you study a little, you'll find that the people that succeeded actually enjoyed what they were doing. They enjoyed it because they know there's always a ram caught in the thicket. So if you make a mistake and you take it to Jesus, caught by your own conscience take it to Jesus he'll see he'll say go that way and don't do it anymore 
we'll put it under blood. I thank God for rams that are caught in the thicket. I know they don't belong there, but Jesus sends them there so their power gets caught so that you can be set free. I appreciate you tonight taking time to come and spend a few minutes with, with me. Uh, I, I enjoy doing this. I enjoy telling this. I'm a storyteller. That's just tell stories. It's just kind of how I present myself in my, in my ministry, you know, and, uh, I enjoy being with you. I think they're going to maybe have some questions that you may have asked that, that they would like to put on the screen. I, I promise you, I, I don't, I can promise you I can answer them, you know, but if I can, I'll just say, I'm sorry. I have no idea. I have no idea, but if I can, <laughs> I'll be happy to try to help you with them. Brother Osborne, that was, that was so good tonight. Thank you so much uh, for being here with us and, and sharing that. Uh, so many good things that I was writing down that, that I thought of. I don't know if we have time for uh, questions and answers. I would like to have a night on Zoom where we can do that, all those questions that we have. Uh, but a couple things you said that I really, really loved. Um, one, you talked about the classroom and ministry, and that's where a lot of young people struggle because no one wants to be in the classroom. I remember as a kid, yeah. I, I wasn't particularly good at classroom time. I was always looking out the window uh, at the green grass and getting out there to play. Yeah. The teacher's teaching me. I'm not listening. And, and I think sometimes young men get, and young ladies get their eyes on the, the pulpit and the microphone and all this, and they're not learning anything in the classroom. And so what I gathered from that in ministry is, is the, you know, before you're ever, before anyone ever acknowledges your calling, you first have to have a, that classroom of prayer. Uh, where you're getting one-on-one -on -one with Jesus because you can't give to others if you haven't been poured into yourself. And I love the fact that you talked about the importance of the classroom to learn there before you get out there and do things and how many ministries have fallen short because they only wanted to go to first grade, but they wanted to have a 12th, 12th grade, you know, uh, preaching life and it didn't, doesn't yeah. work out that way. Yeah. They want to have a good job, make lots of money if they drop out of school. Exactly. They want to have what brother Osborne can do and they only want to spend, you know, uh, maybe a couple a couple hours uh, in a lifetime reading a book or praying, and they think they're just because they're so charismatic. So I loved what you said about about classrooms. So important that if you're in the ministry, classroom of prayer preparation is so so vital to your yeah. ministry. Yeah. And you, you'd also mentioned about uh, you know the, the woman hoping not to get caught and um, doing adultery, and so many people that want to do ministry, they're they're also caught in the world they don't want to get they don't want to get caught by it and it, it reminded me of how much how important uh your our character and integrity is to our ministry that you have to have integrity you have to have character because if we don't have the right integrity it will come out eventually you know in your ministry it will be seen somewhere and who we are outside of the pulpit who we are outside of the pulpit shines much brighter than who we are behind the pulpit so uh who we are is so important to our uh, our ministry outside of the pulpit and who we are on a regular basis, our, our integrity. Was there any questions at all, uh, Brother Art or Brother Greer, that you see of that maybe? I'm not seeing any questions, just a couple of comments here and there. You know, that was people enjoyed it. We had a good good group, but I'm not really seeing any questions. So Okay, okay. Uh, well, well, what we'll do is, is we'll set up a, a, a way that we can do a, a night of questions and answers and just have a round discussion. People may have, have questions, and that's what this is for. These that matters are for. Um, again, thank you, uh, Brother uh, Schnitzer, for being our church growth director uh, for the Missions American Department and helping us with that. If you need anything, if you are a young minister, if you're a young pastor and you want to know about church growth, go see Brother Schnitzer. 
contact him. We'll, we'll help you. You can reach out to us uh, and you can find a way uh, of, of, of getting a hold of him. He'll help you with church growth. Brother Greer, thank you so much, sir, for working with us and, and allowing it through technology, the possibility for us to get together. We're all in different states and here we are together uh, in, in my in my in my office, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, and hopefully all those that that were on tonight, hopefully you were blessed by what you heard. It's always a great treat to hear Brother Osborne. Join us April fourteenth. We will be talking about Bible studies one hundred and one. Brother Schnitzer is one of the greatest Bible studies that teachers I know. He's winning many souls, and we'll discuss teaching Bible studies and getting you started in that direction. Also, to, uh, next week, starting next Friday, please if you're if you're a man. Come down to Maryville for our men's conference. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be great things. We're going to get our man card back, and uh, just really looking forward to that. Uh, the ministry department is doing a great job there. So if you have not yet decided to make it up in your mind, you're going to go because it's important for your Recording ministry. Recording stopped. Uh, again, so thank you so much for being here. Joining us tonight, it is 8.57. we got three minutes. We're out of here. Uh, Brother Osborne, thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Sir, yes, always sir. A great, always a great treat to have you. Okay, guys, we'll end it here. And so thankful for all of you that joined us. Come back and see us as the Missions America Department is doing great things here at home. Revival's happening in America. God bless you. Have a great night. Thank you. God bless. Thank you, brother. God bless all of you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, brother. Osborne. Good night.